0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 280, The New Roman Empire with Antony Kaldellis, Part 3, Narrative. The bulk of Professor Kaldellis's new book is, of course, a narrative of the entire history of Byzantium. It's a comprehensive walkthrough of all the major political and cultural developments with footnotes leading you to all the latest scholarship on the subject. In parts one and two, we talked about aspects of the book's introduction, which sets up who and what Byzantium was. Today, we get into the narrative. I picked out the topics I thought would be most interesting to you, the listeners, and so I asked him about Justinian, Heraclius, the Arab invasions, and then on to more recent quote-unquote events like the collapse of the Comnenian system of government and the Fourth Crusade. At the end of the interview, we put out a call for your questions. In our next episode, I will put your questions to Professor Kaldellis. You can ask anything you like, and we'll do our best to get to as many of them as possible. Post them on social media, on the website, Patreon, or email me, thehistoryofbyzantium@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Uh, don't dawdle, though, as we will record again in a couple of weeks' time. For now, enjoy the interview. Professor Anthony Caldellis. Hello again.
1: Hello, Robin. Thank you for having me. Uh,
0: It's a pleasure as always. Um, So we have covered the structure of government and Christianity, um, quizzing you on your new history of the new Roman Empire. Um, We haven't actually talked about new Rome itself because um, your book begins with the founding of Constantinople. And, um, I thought that was a good place to start with today's episode where I want to kind of jump through the narrative because obviously the bulk of your book is a narrative of the whole of the history of uh, Byzantium as we call it on this podcast and um, so I just want to kind of pick and choose um, the bits I found most interesting and I think the listeners will too but let's start with Constantinople. So in your introduction you talk about the founding of the city and uh what Constantine was aiming to achieve and so on. And I thought something I'd never fully taken in was that the Roman capital was a, a megalopolis, a, a huge city by design. So I kind of assumed, as I imagine many listeners did that capital is a large city because capitals are large cities and Roman empire is a large empire. But actually you right. make the case that this was by design, that this was engineered and, um, Can you talk about why that was?
1: Yeah, so it's very important to, first of all, see this as a problem, because we're so attuned to seeing the Roman Empire as an empire of cities, and for it to have a capital such as Rome, that we take it for granted. But in fact, the Roman emperors in the 3rd century had shown that an emperor doesn't necessarily need to have a large city functioning as his capital, right? In order to be the emperor of the Roman world, they were itinerant, right? So they moved around the frontiers a lot. They were, what they needed were armies. Cities, yeah, kind of, op- I mean, capital cities, kind of optional, right? So making something like Constantinople or new Rome and making provisions for it to expand to the size that it did is a decision. And we have to explain that decision because it didn't have to be taken. And it's not clear that we actually have all the answers here. So we need more research on this, right? There are small scale factors such as, you know, all emperors wanted to have cities named after them. And Constantine was someone who liked to name things after him. Um, He needed to wipe out the memory of Licinius, who was his rival. And Licinius had made his mark on Byzantium. And so kind of refounding it as Constantinople was kind of the equivalent of what Constantine had done in Rome, where he had taken over the monuments of his rival there, right, Maxentius, and reappropriated them for himself. So he's doing the same thing in there. There's kind of wiping out Licinius and founding a city named after him. And all of that would have been standard Roman emperor stuff. But then he takes it to the next level. And I think the evidence is pretty conclusive that he intended this to be a new kind of Rome, an other Rome, a sister Rome. Um, Eventually the name kind of settles on new Rome and that he made provisions for it to expand dramatically. So that's the decision that needs to be explained. And not only that decision, you know, the weird thing is that for 50 years after Constantine, emperors mostly did not reside there. Like it, they continued to be itinerant, and they didn't settle down there until really like around 380 when Theodosius um, moves there, and even he spent about half his time there, though that is significant in itself. But all the while, all those emperors who were not residing in Constantinople, right? Constantius II and Julian and Valens, they were still funding and expanding it. So like they seem to have been invested in this project of keeping this Constantinian. Megalopolis growing to the point where the court could settle down there eventually. And so this is what we need to explain. And in the book, I offer some ideas about why a city like this was necessary. And I mean, some of this is conjectural, but it has to do with the tendency of the Roman Empire to break at precisely that point. So if you look at Roman civil wars with increasing frequency during this third century, the empire tends to break there. And so one rival is controlling all of like the Balkans to Byzantium, and another is controlling Asia Minor. And there are a lot of battles that take place in and around the, the Bosporus or that point. And there are also proposals about you know, rival emperors dividing the empire up at that point and so forth. So, I think that there was a strategic function in sort of clamping the Balkans and Asia Minor together as sort of one unit so that this would not happen in the future. And by and large, it succeeded. That is exactly what Constantinople did for the next thousand years. So, it provided this kind of strategic um, uh, bridge. Um and it wasn't just strategic, it was also political. In other words, you get all of the elites from the main cities of you know the and Greece and Asia Minor and North Syria invested in Constantinople. And so they're less likely as a group to break into rival factions.
0: like just so jumping in. A question... Just just jumping in um to put flesh on the bones of what you're saying, some listeners need the memory jogging. What, what we think of as the crisis of the third century, saw at one point Palmyra out in the desert running what we would think of as Byzantium, the whole Eastern empire, yeah. and like a Gallic empire in Western Europe and then a kind of Italy and Balkans empire in the middle. So the, the fact yeah. that some elites way away from Rome could actually run the whole East on their own is kind of what's in the back of the mind of this idea, that that...
1: Yeah. Yeah. And three times within living memory, there had been Roman civil wars fought exactly there. Uh, once between Constantine and Licinius, I'm going backwards in time, and then twice between Licinius and Maxim and And so that was like the ground zero for um, these kinds of wars. Um, so Constantinople was affixed a to that problem. And that's one factor... And the other is the kind of built-in structural imperative that emperors have to be surrounded by large groups that provide legitimacy. And, you know, that can be the army, though. How much of an army can you have with you at any one time um, is, is a question. And whereas a city can have a much larger validating population and which can then be invested with the role of the populace Romanos. And in fact, the people of Constantinople in the early laws, fourth and fifth century are called populace Romani, populace Romanos or the Romani and so forth. In other words, there's this kind of cycle where emperors create a population that then validates and legitimates them through like acclamations and whatever. Uh, So, there's a function of Roman emperorship that it it tends to thrive when it has that kind of audience to project itself onto. And so emperors are always, you know, even the itinerant emperors are always creating little palaces with hippodromes next to them. You know, Galerius had done the same thing in Thessaloniki and and so forth because they want to have these crowds that, that chant for them because, remember, they don't have elections, right? They don't have... Uh, uh, legitimacy through heredity. So that's how they get it. Which is a brilliant
0: sort of alien idea to us, isn't it? That we think democracy comes from the people overthrowing rulers and demanding this is how we're going to be ruled. And you're saying, Constantine said, in order for me to rule, I need to bring a population to me to cheer me
1: and say, aren't you doing a great job? You're the person we want. Something like that, yes. It's a real cycle of... um, it's neither a vicious cycle nor nor a virtuous one. It's it's just a it's a circular kind of argument of Roman legitimacy, like who is authorizing whom? And it, anyway, that yeah, but that is how it works. That's how the Circus Maximus had functioned in in old Rome. Um, this is how emperors sound out the mood of their subjects, right? I mean, Constantine had even issued these laws that asked for acclamations in the provinces to be recorded and sent to him so that he could get a sense of what people were saying about his officials. So yeah, there is a concern for public opinion and and I think a a big city uh is one thing that um can can create that in, like right there, right outside the palace
0: and and one of the points you make in the book, going back to the palmyra example is. I don't want someone who's rich and powerful living in Palmyra. I want them to live in Constantinople. They can still have riches in Palmyra, but I want them at the court asking me for their next favor, their next appointment. So exactly. if I don't if I don't have a capital, they will stay in Palmyra and then they can take provinces from me.
1: Yeah, you're centralizing the richest People, most influential people from the eastern provinces, and in fact, Constantinople was almost an investment scheme because initially these new senators had to live in Constantinople; they were required to, right? And so it was a way of getting them to invest their money. They had to bring up a large part of it to Constantinople and, um, you know, promote its construction and expansion. You know, initially Constantine had built some some manors. Uh, for the, these Roman elites, including from Italy, so he he transferred some people from Rome too, um, or invited them to do so. Um, and it was it's a funniest So you have a a city that has houses and buildings before it has a population, uh, but yeah, that's that's how it was made. And I did the math in the book about who these people were. So like, if you assume so, the senatorial class in Constantinople expands to about two two and a half thousand people. Uh, within a century. And, you know, these are aristocratic types, wealthy, uh, assume a minimal household of about 30 people. In Rome, for old Rome, we're assuming 100. So 30 is very conservative. These are, like, you know, small compared to the Western aristocracies. It could have been much higher for all we know. And if you do the math, and you had families and attendants and servants and whatever you end up with a large chunk of the original population of constantinople and 100,000 people might just be the domestics and you know clients and people supported by the senatorial aristocracy there
0: yeah it's it's just so interesting cuz i just had never understood that dynamic before and um the other thing you talked about that i thought was very interesting was Part of the reason the population needs to be big is that people are going to die off. That the that if you don't reach a certain level and keep new people coming in, the city will never sustain itself.
1: Yeah. So this is a this is the uh, the, the death trap view of pre-modern cities, right? And actually, a lot of the data comes from London, um, like early modern London, and I, I don't. I don't know if early modern London is more or less sanitary than ancient Rome. I don't know. But the, the going theory is that large to dense concentrations of pe- urban populations in pre-modern times lose about one to three percent of their population per year uh, through disease and you know fires and so forth. And in Rome, you have malaria as uh, a very prominent cause of death. And so in order to maintain a steady population, you have to import one to 3%, right? So that means to get from whatever ancient Byzantium might've been, at most 25,000, to Justinian's half a million, that is an enormous increase. So you need mass immigration, not just to reach that level, but also to sustain it, right? So you're having a few thousand people need to move to Justinian's Constantinople just to keep the population at that level. Then the plague uh, changes the demographic (laughs) calculus altogether, right? Um, But that means that there is this internal migration going on in the Roman empire that in aggregate, by the way, is larger than the barbarian invasions, right? A bar- a barbarian invasion at the largest ones were something like 80,000 population, like the vandals or whatever, with a army of maybe 15,000 men in that population. Um, occasionally like gothic groups and whatever so the growth of constantinople actually involved more more people moving than that yeah
0: yeah it's it's a it's just a really fascinating part of the introduction that i'd never because i hadn't studied that period i'd never thought about the one thing the listeners will be familiar with is that people particularly with hindsight think well constantine chose such a great defensible site that's why you know, what a great choice for a city. And then you look into it and you go, there's no river there. There are very few um, good supporting towns and harbors nearby and so on. And you find all these reasons why actually it's quite a hard site to build a, a mega city. And so you need a lot of work, obviously these gigantic aqueducts just to keep a population going. Yes, um,
1: the water was a problem. And that's why we have all of those cisterns Mm. right some of them very famous uh, in from movies and so forth they're, they're still there they're not used for that purpose uh, but you needed to have large cap- uh, capability for storing water and bringing it from those forests out in thrace right so constantinople ended up with more miles of aqueduct than ancient rome just for this purpose right so water is one thing and grain is the other So you have to feed these people, and that comes mostly from Egypt in this period, in the early period, right? And we're talking, at its peak, we're talking about, like, fleets of ships arriving on an hourly basis, because the grain had to be brought in during the sailing season, which was, like, late spring to early to fall, and if you, you know if you do the math, it's a lot of ships uh, coming in uh, two times a year. I don't know if they could have managed three times. Uh, so back, just back and forth and back and forth. There was probably you, you know imagine a row of ships waiting to dock and unload and go back. Right, just just like you would in a major harbor today. You look out and you see these big tankers and whatever. Whatever and they're sitting there and you wonder why are they sitting there. What are they doing <laughs> anyway? Um, So these ships are constantly coming in, and they, of course, have Egyptian sailors. Egyptian sailors, you know, come out, they have shore leave, and sometimes it doesn't go very well. (laughs) They get into (laughs) brawls with the locals, they, you know, interfere in theological controversies when their bishop is at odds with the Bishop of Constantinople. So yeah, this is a massive scale logistics, uh, kind of industrial supply for this city. I mean, it's... It's not just something that was, you know, there. It was something that needed to be maintained at incredible cost.
0: It's a really, anyway, it's a really interesting part of the book. And obviously uh, you then get into all sorts of narrative following on from that, that listeners may be less familiar with because I haven't covered that. This podcast began in 476. So uh, I would very much recommend reading that whole period um, because it was really fresh to me. Um, but I want to jump ahead now in the narrative to the next question, um, which was Justinian, um, who came fairly early on in in the narrative I covered. Um, and I just wanted to pick up on something. We talked about him in the Top Ten Emperor's podcast where he did not feature, and um, uh, which I was pleased with uh, because my own conclusion was slightly negative on Justinian. But um, you made this very interesting comment because we – of all the emperors in Byzantium, we probably know him the best because of the amount, I mean, whether we can ever know someone, but you know, the amount of um, sources we have and the laws that he approved, if if he didn't write them himself and so on. And you said at one point, I'm not sure I like the way his mind worked. And I'm not sure you could have said that about any other emperor, because we just don't know. Mm. So what did you mean by that?
1: Well, Robin, I mean, to a certain degree, political leaders in all times are kind of in, in interconvertible in a way. Would you be happy having that guy as the head of your government? <laughs> I, I suppose
0: it depends what state my society was in, uh, uh, you know. It, <sighs> he he definitely has his his good points, but... Let's uh, start with those. Mm.
1: Like, what do you think they are? That he's
0: very hardworking and dedicated and intelligent and i forget if you said this but both a good delegator and a relentless micromanager so yes uh, so he's not uh incompetent he's not disinterested that's right um I, i think he he is very egotistical but at the same time that means he's investing in lots of things in a good way um and if you agree with the gist of what he's doing, then you'll be pleased by the efforts he's making to push things in a certain direction. Um, you know, he's 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 optimistic, which you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. could be could be a good thing. Lots of other emperors would never have touched the Vandals, and you could say that's a great thing, or if depending on your
1: perspective. So those, those I'd say, are the positive.
0: Points. Yes,
1: I think you you hit them pretty well. And let's add some of the specific policies that we might admire, which is that much of his legislation favors uh, groups that had less power. Um, So he intervened in marriage law and inheritance law and so forth to benefit women, daughters, right? Um, Other sort of marginal groups or, you know, it seems he didn't set too much store by one's birth, if, judging by the choice of people he married, but also had in his sort of cabinet and in his legislation, right? And there are also a number of laws where you you can sympathize with him because he's clearly trying to do what he thinks is best. and And sometimes when you agree with him, you, you like to see him sort of fighting the good fight there. And he's clearly up against some <laughs> shenanigans and he's constantly having to close loopholes and every law opens more loopholes and he gets frustrated. He's clearly frustrated at what people are doing to get around his laws. And so he's more issues, more laws. Right. And that's how we end up with all these hundreds and hundreds of laws from him. Right. He's trying to close all these loopholes that, enabled corruption and exploitation. Okay. So there, there, there are things to like there. Uh, and I, I don't have a, personally, I don't know that, you know, taking North Africa and Italy was, I don't know, you know, worth it or I, I don't even know how to assess that. But anyway, mm-hmm. on the other hand, there are clearly things that just, um, so, the intolerance is probably one of the worst. So when you have someone who's hardworking and very, very powerful and hates everyone who deviates from his idea of what a proper Christian Roman should be, that's a very dangerous combination, in fact, lethal. Mm. Right? Um, and you couple that with beliefs such as that homosexual activity causes earthquakes, which he's on the record as saying. Mm. Um, and it and it gets, he makes life much more dangerous for a lot of people, right? And the biggest group he went after, of course, anti-Chalcedonians. Uh, it was so big, in fact, that he couldn't even begin to move against the ones in Egypt. There's just too many. And this shows you kind of the limits of, Roman imperial power when it when it wants to do too much in too little time, right? Um, you know, over time it can do a lot of things, but just to persuade people to, you know, change their religious sort of affiliation that fast. He imposes the death penalty on apostates. You know, many people don't know this. they They think that this is something characteristic of like medieval Islam or something where mm-hmm. apostasy is punishable by death. But no, there's a law of Justinian about that. If you, if you go Christian and you go back, it's death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also like his commitment to social engineering, no matter the cost to the people who had to bear, you know, the the burden of it, is also um, very off putting. Uh, you know, so the way his mind processes. Um, ideological commitments via bureaucratic procedures is sort of terrifying, and mm. I I don't like to see that part of it when when it's on the page, right? Or in history, because we have accounts, you know, of what he did. Um, so this is what I meant when I said I don't like the way his mind works. Sometimes it's too inflexible a commitment to ideological priorities that you know sometimes good and sometimes bad. But you, you know, you always have the sense that when they were good, he like marginally moved the needle to benefit those groups. But when they were bad, like it was really bad. Mm. I don't know. Did I cover what you, yeah, don't like about him? Or well,
0: it's. I was just thinking it's interesting that uh, a lot of scholars like I forget who made the comparison originally, but it comparisons to Stalin, Honoré, but, yeah, yeah. Um it's interesting because I remember someone saying, oh, it's like a McCarthyist witch hunt, his early administration. I was like, it's interesting you can be compared to <laughs> communists and anti-communists in the same uh, period. But, um, I, well, I, I reflect now on, I, I'm very narrative-based in my assessments, which I suppose makes sense because that's sort of the business of the podcast. M- my sense with him was he's such a true believer that he puts the he puts the needs of how he thinks the state should be ahead of the needs of how the state is. So Mm -hmm. he sends troops to Spain, which I don't see how he can think he'll have any hope of controlling or really keeping while there's lots of Slavic groups moving into the Balkans. There are Bulgars raiding the Balkans. And I'm like, do you not see a danger there? And again, I can't divorce myself from the hindsight, of course, of knowing the Balkans is gonna be a trouble spot. So maybe he had a you know he had a sense that everything would be all right and the Avars were were not the threat they'd become. And I I don't know if I don't want to judge him too harshly, but um
1: yeah so there's our our hindsight and there's also his hindsight. And his hindsight was that North Africa and Italy, at least until 540, had paid off spectacularly with very little cost. And that You never know when an intervention in a distant place like Spain might seem far-fetched at first, but you just never know because these barbarian regimes, right, the sort of barbarian kingdoms in the West, are, it turns out, much more fragile than they had appeared to be, which makes sense because they're just governed by a, a military aristocracy that's pretty thin on the top, And if you can split it, you have chances of grabbing a lot of, you know, territory and local influence, or if you can just destroy them in a battle, you take over the whole thing. And so I think the intervention in Spain, which was precisely an intervention in a Gothic civil war, must have sparked the following kinds of thinking. Well, you know, the Vandals were kind of divided and it worked against them uh, when we intervened there. So who knows, maybe we can intervene in Spain and grab a good chunk of it. and Maybe then the Goths will just fight each other and we can take the, the next. That didn't happen. So now you've got this chunk of territory in the South. Well, you're not just going to give it up because it didn't go like all the way. You just keep what you have. And that's what they did. So you can understand how he got himself into that situation. But you're entirely right that... He was um, didn't calculate risk very well, especially in the Balkans in the East. In other words, you know those Western conquests they required moving armies from the East to the West, and that left the East unprotected. It clearly did. It did in 540, and it right when the Persians burst mm-hmm. in and sack everything, and it led to a long-term um, military deficit in the East because armies are limited. You can't just raise an infinite number of soldiers, especially when the plague is making it hard, both for revenue and manpower, and also in the Balkans. So in a certain sense, there's a zero sum game going on among all of the different frontiers. And so he he creates one in North Africa, he creates one in Italy, he creates one in Spain, right? (laughs) at precisely the time when the east and the balkans are becoming riskier and riskier so that whole calculation strategically i think was bad and and it had very long negative consequences now there are historians who are defending justinian on that uh, and you can definitely push a lot of the blame onto his successors but i think the context of increased risk is something that he left to them
0: Mm. yeah well, we could talk about Justinian all day, but let, yeah. let's let's move on <laughs> to um, the next headline-grabbing figure, Heraclius. So, this was the one, as I as I warned you at the time, that most listeners were surprised didn't feature in the top ten list because most listeners think pulling the eastern provinces back from such a point of collapse is a is an amazing achievement. And again, I think this is a, a case where the narrative is so exciting and the achiev and the the then loss to the to Islam seems like a kind of bolt of lightning that you he can't be held accountable for, that they that they think, well Heraclius is is up there. Now what's your assessment again, sort of why is he not why is his achievement
1: not at that level? I don't disagree with what you just said. I mean it's all true the basic outlines of the narrative are well known but that's not what we're talking about we're talking about whether that merits a place in the top ten and in that context if that's the achievement i would have at least expected at a minimum for him to have kept those provinces (laughs) right now granted the arab invasions were uh, unforeseeable they came from a direction where Roman strategic planning had not invested in defenses from that direction. Like, why would they? Um, and your both empires, Roman and Persian, are exhausted, destroyed. Um, so, I, like, we understand why what happened happened. But again, the 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 question is whether you put someone in the top ten. Let me add also that he had contributed significantly to the bad state of the East when he took over by forcing this three-year civil war that really mauled some of the few armies that the Romans had left by that point. So, okay, you might argue this is a sovereign question about, you know, who rules and in a civil war, you know, everything is on the table, but, you know, A, he was... To a considerable degree, responsible for that bad state, and B, he didn't manage to keep it afterwards. Again, you can excuse the every one of those decisions. You can excuse the man. You can do all of that, but I still don't think that that merits being put in the top ten. <laughs> especially because let's look at his his accomplishment as such. It really consists of two campaigns, right? Now, I mean, they lasted for more than a year each, but there were two campaigns and one was this uh, Caucasian adventure um, uh, where we don't have a reliable, coherent narrative. There's some real debates about how you reconstruct the movements of the armies. But either way, no matter how you read it, it was brilliant in the sense of tactics and maneuvering, but it accomplished nothing. The first one like Heraclius was chased around the Caucasus by two Persian armies. Most of the time managed to defeat them, elude them, move very, very quickly and get out without suffering losses, which is amazing, but it it accomplished nothing. Didn't shift the borders, the strategic balance or anything. And then there was a second one which drove straight for the heart of the persian uh, regime the agricultural um, base of the iranian aristocracy and that's the one that shattered khusro's regime but i'm pretty convinced that this was a joint roman turkish operation um and there which now heracles is writing back to constantinople and he wants to present this as a Roman operation, something that only he's doing, but even in those missives he slips up sometimes and you can you can tell that it's possible that the Turks were the larger army. Um, and so this was you know, he was happy to accompany them on this raiding um, expedition into Mesopotamia. Uh, which is now a feat of Roman diplomacy that they managed to organize that. Um, for both of these armies to be operating very far from their, you know, base. Um, It's something that Constantinople had been working on since right after Justinian. So, you know, forging these ties with the Central Asian Turks that ultimately paid off. This was a global scale, right, geostrategic alliance uh, where both Turks and Romans had an interest um, in attacking the Persian Empire at that moment, so diplom—I think it was a bigger um, achievement of diplomacy that had been put together by Heraclius's predecessors, uh, in particular Justin the uh, Second, than a military achievement that he accomplished. So um, that's my response to mm-hmm. so the the pro heraclius crowd, and uh, if they want to write back or uh, push back against any of these points. I'm happy to continue the conversation.
0: I mean, I think that uh, it's why I was so pleased with your top 10s, because your approach is different to a lot of listeners, which I think, again, is very narrative-based. So um, Isaac II, Angelos, you ranked as one of the worst emperors. And I think narratively, there's a lot of sympathy for him. But you said, but this is what he achieved. So that's Mm. the result. And it's similar with Heraclius. Mm. Again, Heraclius gets a huge amount of sympathy. um, And so that sort of excuses failings in people's assessment.
1: Well, let me add that Heraclius has been heroized in Western tradition, especially in connection with the Crusades um, Mm. at the time in medieval Western Europe as a kind of proto-Crusader. And... Both because of his own propaganda, which at the time, right, had elements such as like duels and, you know, heroic warfare and speeches to his army about the sovereignty of the Roman people and the independence of Rome and things like that that invested him with this kind of like aura of you know a sort of noble crusader in distant lands and whatever whatever it's a long tradition um that is still kind of shaping how he's remembered um so and you know he where his wars against the Persians kind of blur into crusading anti-Muslim wars and all of that. I mean, we we gotta pick that all apart. Mm. That's not a real achievement. <laughs> It was really interesting. And the part of the book that
0: was most unfamiliar to me was when you covered life under Sasanid occupation in the eastern provinces. Because obviously my research level, uh, particularly at that time, was uh, much less than it is now, but much less obviously than the level you work at. So I couldn't find anything about the occupation. The only comment people made was that oh, all the Monophysites in Syria and Egypt might not have been too bothered that they were being lifted out of the persecution of you know, Chalcedonian Constantinopolitans which mm, <laughs> well, maybe we come back to that. So c- can you tell the listeners where you found information about life in, in the Empire uh, uh, during that the Heraclean Wars and what uh, the occupation seemed to be
1: like. So this was fascinating to me, too, because I had never looked into this in detail. And when I did, and I found all that I found, for a while, I was thinking, wow, this requires a separate book. Uh, I was trying to entice a colleague who also works on like Middle Persian and you know, get some Sasanian expert to do it together. So... To be clear, we're not talking about the war here, like the military maneuvers. We're talking about what it was like to live for all of these millions of Romans in the eastern provinces, what it was like to live under the Persian occupation for however long they did. Some of them for up, you know, 25 years plus, some for just 10. And now, oh Robin, I got to ask you so when you're reading history books especially scholarship do you often come across cuz i do the following kinds of statements about imperial expansion um often at the expense of the eastern roman empire but it's something like, it's something like this such and such foreign you know invader you know conquers these lands but the people on the ground barely notice that their masters have been changed and they just go from one exploitative regime to another. And in fact, they might have actually even liked to not be ruled by Constantinople because maybe the uh, Persians slash Davars slash Turks slash whatever, um, had maybe lighter taxes or whatever. Okay. I've seen this so much that it's now become like a trope mm. that I'm sensitive to, and it's often coupled with the following idea. Most of these people are peasants and they don't care about their, the government is distant and just oppressive. All the government is to them is uh, someone who comes along and takes taxes from them often by beating them every once in a while. And so they're sometimes even happy to see those people get their comeuppance. Okay. Because these are apolitical types who often don't have any identities because that's that's just all elite stuff in Constantinople. Like, there's this kind of narrative and I think it is utterly and completely wrong. It's not even like misleading, which is the you know nice way of putting the theory <laughs> you don't agree with. It's just out and out false uh, on 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 every level, but it it depoliticizes the majority of the population and treats them as ignorant and indifferent, which it not, it can't possibly have been the case. Um, and that has happened in some recent scholarship with the Persian occupation. Uh, there's some scholarship, which says, Oh, this is no big deal. This is quote a bump in the road. Right. But all of the evidence suggests that that's not the case. Um, not only was the 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 invasion itself, so the the behavior of the conquering armies very, very um, harmful, destructive, so lots of killing and slaughter associated with it, but also mass deportations. So the one thing that see what, and the Persian shots had always done this every time they invaded, they just carted off as many prisoners as they could. Because there was like a manpower shortage, I think, always in the agricultural estates in Mesopotamia. So they would just cart away tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. And they did this as soon as they got their hands on this population in the eastern provinces. They started um, uh, transporting them um, down Mesopotamia to all of these estates and, and settling them on, on these like, you know, agro communities to you know, whatever. Um There's that, then they strip all of the gold and silver that they can find, Uh, especially the silver Is a Persian economy, um, preferred silver. So the churches just get stripped. uh, You know, they hunt for treasures and money everywhere that they can. There is a lot of evidence that the occupation authorities were were violent, um, but also, and here's the key problem, they were unaccountable. So in the Roman system, The Roman imperial system, by this point, has lots of options. It offers a lot of opportunities to subjects to contest uh, what authorities are doing, uh, either by appealing, by suing, or by complaining, or by petition. And you may or may not win, though the evidence is that the system was responsive. This is a key part of the book, that that the, the... the imperial government at this time understands itself very self-consciously to be responsive to the needs of its subjects. And conversely, that its subjects know that it's trying to project and cultivate that sort of personality, and they take advantage of that. So the government is giving them tools with which to resist uh, abusive officials and that local populations, yes, peasants, are actually both aware of these and are using right we have lots of evidence to this effect now maybe you win maybe you don't you know maybe the system protects its own well whatever it's not different from any legal system in any country even today in our democracies you go try suing exxon this relationship did not exist with the persian authorities appeal to whom um and so there are papyri from Egypt, and also ostraca. Anyway, texts that are sort of uh, you know temporary documentary texts that talk about abuses. Um, people couldn't petition the local political authorities because they'd been sort of decapitated symbolically. I mean that by the Persians. So they were like writing to local holy men and bishops and abbots and saying. My husband disappeared when the Persians arrived. What am I supposed to do with the whatever? Like I can't, you know, there's enormous displacements. So populations who fled from the Persians, um, they moved west. They went to Constantinople. Um, You know, ultimately your Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Theodore uh, of Tarsus, is among the people displaced. Uh, So this had ramifications extending to uh, England. Right. Maximus, the confessor, uh, a native of the East, he fled, he had to go to North Africa to avoid the barbarians, he said. Um, So. (laughs) The way I put it in the book is that. Business as usual, I don't know. I mean, apart from the invasions and the slaughters and the deportation and the confiscation of goods and the disappearance of people and the mass flight, and the fact that you're subject to an kind of arbitrary occupation authority that can take what it wants to fund a war effort against other Christians, yeah, apart from that, it was business as usual.
0: Uh, I mean, yeah, it really, I mean, I really recommend people read that whole bit because it was so interesting. And it's kind of no wonder that down in Arabia, lots of people were saying the Roman world's over like or you know the, the 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 stable order we're all let's say merchants heading into syria or palestine everything's disrupted everything's gone all the people i used to deal with have disappeared i'm having to deal with new people it's chaos there and yeah. so on yes. and that was the next thing i found interesting because the that the origins of islam and the the rise of the arab caliphate, uh, I did find a lot of sources, and obviously it's a bewildering and uh, absolutely fascinating field. Um, uh, But the the one thing that stood out to me was that lots of scholars seem to suggest a lack of centralization um, in the early attacks on Roman territory. Not necessarily they were proposing another uh, narrative, just that they were questioning whether attacks were centrally directed by an authority operating in uh you know whatever northern saudi arabia we would now think of it sort of area um and that questioning whether that was all retrofitted by islamic histories when they were working out the the you know the uh, the correct order of caliphs and and who did what and, and so on but you and your narrative felt, no, these were centrally directed attacks leading up to the Battle of Yamuk and so on, uh, and the caliphs were in charge. Is that, is that a fair characterization?
1: Yes. Now, depends on what we mean by the early Arab raid. So mm-hmm. early, early, yeah, there were raids and there were minor things. And so, so the way it usually works is that there's raiding going on that's, yeah, decentralized, kind of random, you're testing for soft targets, you're finding where the weaknesses are. That doesn't have to be um, planned. In fact, sort of many uh, empires, before they expand, before we see the real armies move in, there is this phase of, yes, sending some raiders out. And, and, And in fact, this doesn't have to be centralized, because The problem you're facing when you're creating a new empire in, let's say, Asia, is that you suddenly attract too many people, get interested in what you're doing, and you you don't necessarily have something for them to do. You can't reward them properly, is what I mean. And yet you don't want them to cause trouble. And so you say, hey, why don't you guys go see what's going on over there? And, you know, go, go... Test those cities in like, you know, Palestine or whatever, and go, you know, and come back and and tell us what you find. <laughs> so off they go. And that's before you get your armies together. But when we get to the point in the 630s when you're having battles between the Arab armies and the imperial armies, those are very clearly. Uh, coordinated, um, and I'm relying here in part on Fred Donner's work uh, on this, which is excellent reconstruction of the uh, military logistics and numbers and so on. And his estimate, actually, based on the sources, the Arab sources, is that they maybe had something between 20 and 24,000 soldiers, which you might think was not much. And no, it's not. But you have to remember that The Eastern Roman Empire is operating with very diminished military capacity um, after that long war with Persia. And our calculations uh, in our separate book on the field armies of the uh, Eastern Roman Empire uh, that Marion Cruz and I wrote, and we we talked about it in a separate uh, podcast episode on my podcast, tallies very nicely with that. In other words, we estimate that that's pretty much also what Heraclius had. Mm. Uh, in the east. Um, and so, yeah, that's about one and a half field armies. And by the way, independently, it's also about what the Avar Khan had. And, you know, we have some indications of the size of his army. It's about 20, 20 plus thousand. So the numbers independently kind of check out that that these are the, this is the order of magnitude that we're talking about. But here's the thing the arab armies are usually operating in smaller groups under the you know command of different generals but whenever necessary they they pull together into one force and the whole way in which they're moving and the coordination of the war in palestine syria and mesopotamia because they're concurrently taking on these two broken empires indicates coordination at the center like in other words Every time there's a crisis in one of the two fronts, the armies from the other move there and then back again. And so, yeah, you can't, that's not a Mm. bunch of independent warlords who are just kind of freelancing it.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. It's also a matter of perspective, isn't it? Because I'm now researching the post 1204 period where an army of 2,000 can capture 20, 25 cities. And so, the idea of an army
1: of 24,000.
0: It seems big to me at the moment.
1: Um, yeah, go back to Trajan and look at the numbers there. Yeah. That's frightening.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, again, another really interesting part of the book. Um, obviously, an area where scholarship could one day explode with all sorts of new information, but yeah, we wait. Um, <laughs> so, uh, let's move forward in time. Um, the next period I kind of, I'm skipping largely because I followed your work for a lot of it. So ah, yes. uh, this was uh, less surprising to me uh, what came out. But you made a comment. So jumping all the way to Basil II, um, just to, to remind listeners, this is obviously the caliphate has gone into permanent decline and the Romans have now retaken all these uh, border cities that had been used to raid them. And so Basil II comes to the throne with the Romans as the kind of dominant power in the region again. And he has to deal with these big, long civil wars against um, his generals, Bardas Focus and Bardas Scleros. And you uh, made a really interesting parallel with earlier periods of Roman history. And I thought the listeners might be interested
1: in that comparison. Well, I think I compared it to the late Republic, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there are a couple of things that suggested that to me. One was that the context is rather similar. In other words, these are Roman civil wars that are occurring right after a period of massive expansion of territory. Yeah. Relative to the size of each state, right? We're not talking about all of Gaul, um, you know, Caesar conquered, but uh, all of like, you know, northern Cilicia, northern Syria, the Caucasus, and all of Bulgaria, that's pretty large. So right after a bout of Um, military expansion, Bulgaria is not yet at the time of the civil wars, but, you know, Basel was thinking about it. Um, You suddenly have these large civil wars. Um, So that was structurally similar because those civil wars create um, armies, large armies, um, and wealth that, uh, you know, these rival generals uh, can use to uh, promote their political careers. And it's also when you start to have Um, like the Focas Focas family starts to like build up its sort of its own client network within the armies um, such that they can just by virtue of the prestige of their name, um, command loyalty in the otherwise state armies, uh, which reminds me of things like like, Pompey who inherited armies from his father in a way and, uh, you know, Caesar passing the loyalty on to like, Antony or, you know, Octavian and so forth. So it reminded me a little bit of that kind of context. But at the same time, what was interesting is that you suddenly start to have these very large personalities that you know from a number of different sources. And I thought those were interesting too. I mean, from Basel II to the eunuch, the Chamberlain, um, Basel, the Parachimomenos also, and the Focas and Slyros and all of these people... Um, you have Arabic sources and Georgian sources and, and Greek and Latin ones, and suddenly they like they, they kind of acquire this kind of larger than life presence um, in some of these sources, which I thought reminded me a little bit of the the kind of the the Sullas and the Caesars and Pompeys. Not on the again, not on the same level. I'm not saying that, but it's rather reminiscent uh, in terms of sort of structure and narrative.
0: Yeah that's interesting and there's almost there's a sense in which what's the roman state going to be after this about those civil wars and this may be overstating it but um i think it's mark mark Wito's book sort of focuses on that idea that would a focus or a scleros have gone on expanding or attacking or the idea that um Nikki Forest would would sort of make Roman armies more crusader or jihad-minded in terms of what, you know, uh, that, that sort of thought is, is going around of what might the state be? Or is the well, state going to stay in Constantinople and orthodoxy and, and those things?
1: Oh, sure. I don't think there was a, ever a real possibility that those things would change. So this is a difference from the Republican Roman civil wars, which is that back then, the nature of the regime was in question, right? Mm -hmm. Because the senatorial aristocracy and that whole, what we call the republic, was falling apart. The wheels were coming off. It was clear at the time. Whereas I don't think that anything like that was in play in the 10th century. The the nature of the regime was solid. I don't think any of the contestants here had um, any mind to... Change the fundamentals. It was mostly a question of who you put in, in who's in charge. So that is a major difference, uh, which is why I would never argue that these wars have the same significance Mm. as those, because those were the uh, inauguration of the imperial monarchy. Uh, Whereas I don't think that you know Focas would have you know changed. In fact, I don't even think that there were um, great differences of policy about conquest. Uh, I think there was a kind of consensus about how much to conquer and at what point the conquest would become um you know counterproductive you reach a point of diminishing returns where you you get more problems than assets and i think they had all realized that they reached that point mm-hmm. what are you going you know, to go into mesopotamia and do what um anyway so i don't think there was that much at stake. However, because of the recent conquests, they had these large armies and it was brutal. Yeah, There's the same levels of brutality. Uh, if you look at the way that sometimes Basel II punished his enemies, uh, it sort of reminds me of like Sulla or something like that.
0: There's kind of a structural similarity. Once you reach your goal, civil war follows because the armies are turning up ready to conquer more, there's nothing more to conquer, so they turn on each other in in pursuit of the goals of their generals.
1: Right, because the generals, I mean, in both cases, so there's a structural similarity here, is that what do the generals do, go back to civilian life? Like, after after you've been master of the whole East, and then you're like, okay, your term is up, now I'll go home and I'll send someone else. And a lot of people are like, no. That's not
0: going to happen. Yeah. Uh, That's a really interesting uh, comparison point. And it's uh, it's one that I think no one else has made because of that divorce between Byzantine history and and Roman history and so on. Um, Yes. So let's jump forward to um, the, the modern era of the podcast, the Komnenian period. And this was actually several listeners asked me this question, but I'm passing it on to you, which was about the Byzantine Republic. Now these questions came in before we did our recent episodes on government, where you kind of talked about the monarchical republic, and we talked about we've we've talked a lot about how the government was responsive, and um, and we've talked in the past about how emperors have to manage a coalition of support and to some extent get elected at times. Um, So listeners were asking, does that concept change at all in the Comnenian period, where? alexis komnenos uh, changes the, the the system of of hierarchy at the court to be based on sort of um uh how who's related to him um and uh, does that does that affect the the government's sense of uh r- responsiveness to the people given that you're sort of saying we are the elite and we we can't be changed in theory because we are related to the emperor and it's a status that uh, can't be removed in the way an unpopular official can be simply decided. That's the question that's coming up. right? Um, not necessarily that, that's the argument, but yeah.
1: No, I don't think it changes because the, the concept of the Byzantine Republic is not about the shape of the government. It's not about the you know, the shape of court titles um, or even necessarily who gets them. It's about how the government or the people holding those positions understand their function um, and to what degree they are um, um, in a dialectical relationship with the majority of the population in terms of the point of the, the role of the government is to protect and promote the interests of the Romans, and um, nothing about that changes under Alexius. In fact, Alexius himself makes some of the most strong uh, declarations of that principle. Um, now, you can argue that he does so because he's being criticized, and he was being criticized a lot about the, the this, um, to which I can say, yes, I mean, th- these are crisis years um, under Alexius, and so he had to do certain things that were ultimately successful but unpopular in the moment. And this is the uh, um, the dynamic that plays out under the Komneni with regard to their popularity. Not, not um, Ioannis Komnenos not John II. Um, that guy was mostly just doing campaigns and was fairly successful and and, and was personally you know, kind of attractive or, you know, from neutral to attractive, those kinds of emperors are safe. They don't have much to fear from the the body politic, as it were. Uh, you know, if you're keeping the borders safe, if you're not raising taxation too much, if you're not involved in scandals or, you know, ecclesiastical controversies or whatever, as he wasn't in any of those things, you're relatively safe. And one indication of that is that we don't have very many sources from his reign uh, there. Anyway, um, it, it, in other words, it didn't spark controversies and it's controversies that produce the texts. Alexis's reign produced a lot of controversy and a lot of text because he had to do things that were very unpopular, like confiscating church plate or like all of that, which then forced him to take all of these measures like, you know, poses the champion of orthodoxy by cracking down on some poor philosopher somewhere, some poor heretic over there, right? These are like public relations gestures that he's constantly having to do. Those gestures are a sure sign that an emperor is trying to cultivate public support. Um, And he's doing it a lot. All of the, the hair shirt wearing and the constant apologies. He's apologizing profusely for everything that he's done. That's not some kind of aloof, you know, hereditary, you know, family government that doesn't care what people think. Um, normally, like Western monarchs who are hereditary don't have to do those kinds of things. Uh, they just say, hey, what are you talking about? I'm the son of the previous guy. Go away. <laughs> um and also, by the way, Alexius's inner circle was not all family-based. Uh, this is a bit of a misconception, but for most of his reign, it wasn't. It was an odd assortment of um, other families. Uh, co- there was a coalition of families that he had to put together, uh, which was very tense. Uh, sometimes he couldn't always trust these people. There were a bunch of foreigners. There's this uh, Georgian guy, uh, Pakurianos. There's... Um, Uh, a a Frank guy who's literally called a son of Humbert. Um, And so it's this odd thing. He reigned for so long that eventually the second generation of Kemeny managed to mature during his reign. And he was young enough when he took power that he was then able to put them in positions. Um, And that continues. Um, But you can you can always tell that it's that there's this kind of probationary sense that they're being evaluated. Manuel II, we talked about, he plays the game so well that he was given some leeway, um, not not too much, but he was given leeway in two areas that are significant. One is the um, uh, the the expedition to Italy. <laughs> which is a like he had vanity wars. Let me just put it like that. He had these vanity wars in Italy and Hungary and all of these things that cost money, very little return, if any. Uh, And nevertheless, they were sort of tolerated, though you you can tell occasionally they're telling him, okay, all right, wrap it up. Um, And also his sort of theological hobbies, those were also kind of like he was given some leeway. And the reason for that is because of what I think is his popularity, something that he also cultivated a great deal He's very, very successful at it. So we don't see in his case, the government overreaching in some way that would indicate that it had kind of detached itself from that, you know, very close inspection that quote the body politic or the Republic um, is always visiting on emperors. And then, you know, once his, once he's removed from the picture and the whole Komnenian system comes under stress, like literally as soon as he dies, you immediately see p- the people coming out into the streets and occupying. Like it's all there. It just there was no reason for them to do anything. So the structure of court titles and who gets them and this um, shift to, which is which is true by the way. So anyone who wants to raise this is correct that. The inner circle around the emperor and a lot of the top positions were going were going more to relatives than had been the case in the past is definitely true and it's something that troubled um, a lot of people uh, at the time. You see this in Zonaras and Honiatis and and others and Ioannis Okseides, patriarch of Antioch, who complained to Alexis about this. In other words, the pushback against that was there, and as soon as the regime revealed itself as very, very weak uh, or susceptible to the likes of Andronicus I, um, you know, they all just burst out again. In other words, they, they didn't reinvent kind of Republican politics in 1182, 1183. Uh, it was all there. It's just that the context has to be right. And I would remind our audience that when the Latins are about to take the city for the second time in 1204, Cognatis, who was no populist, admits that it was the people of Constantinople, led by Alexius V, who were taking up the fight against the foreigner after they'd sort of been abandoned, essentially, by the leadership of their elites. So it was all there. I don't Mm. think anything meaningfully changed. So
0: is it more of a cultural change that after a century of good emperors, all named Komnenos, all marrying uh, sort of whatever you would say, 20, 30 top aristocratic families, that that just has created a new currency in the culture, that if you are blood-related to someone in that the ruling clan, that is a leg up in power now. That doesn't change the fundamentals of how people see their state it just is a new part of the culture that didn't exist in justinian's day when people could rise from nowhere and it didn't matter who you were related to if you were picked by the emperor to serve in a particular role
1: oh people could still rise from nowhere under the uh, Mm. community i I don't think that goes away there's probably a um less scope for it at the top echelons i would say Mm. that it's not something that goes away we we know of people in fact uh I think it was uh, Timothy Miller who found that one of the top officials, the finance officials of Manuel, the, the, um, was raised in an orphanage. Mm. Um, and yeah, there there are people like that. They they always are. But at the same time, yeah, there you can see um, the these top families monopolizing a lot of the the. Um, a lot of the positions. Yeah. In other words, yes, there is a kind of shift in the culture. You do start to have the emergence of a kind of aristocratic, a more aristocratic culture. Um, Some of this has been exaggerated. So for example, there's a reference, I think it's in Valsamon, uh, a a canon, uh, well, titular patriarch, but um, mostly a, a legal scholar in the church, to someone who was punished for marrying into some segment of the aristocracy without imperial permission. And I think this has been exaggerated to mean that, that there was that there were marriage restrictions, you know, in, in like the elite is, is cutting itself off from the, from everyone else, even by marriage. But I don't think that that that's what that means. All marriages that had political or international diplomatic um, significance, or possible impact, they all had to be approved by the court. Like the, it's just, and that wasn't anything new. That was in the mm. past. And so I think that's what that means. I don't think it it means some kind of restriction of um, marrying into the elite.
0: And. Does provincial separatism, as it's usually called, fit into this picture at all? Or is that an entirely contingent development around the, you know, sort of 1195-ish bit before onwards, where uh, rebels stop marching on the capital and they just start staying in their own province and saying, you know, something's broken here with our connection to the court, so we'll just stop interacting with the court.
1: So I've now come to believe that this didn't really exist. Um, And, you know, we can discuss it case by case. But, I mean, there are clear cases like, for example, Bulgaria. But that's not what we mean. I mean, this is an occupied foreign state and people who had tried already twice before to regain independence and did so this time. Um, You can count that as provincial separatism, but it's it's a very distinct Kind of thing, and and that's not what people mean. They mean things like Cyprus in like eleven eighty five or something like that. But Alicia Simpson has recently argued, I, I think, correctly, that Cyprus is not a breakaway province. It was a failed rebellion that stalled. In other words, hmm. what happens when you have a situation when you have a a, a a rebel who wants to take the throne, just like every other rebel. Uh, from within the family, kind of leveraging his Comdenian, whatever, who fails to take the capital. But at the same time, the capital who takes measures to suppress him fails to do that. It just kind of results in a stalemate of them looking at each other, and they're both Vasilevson Roman and, you know, m- minting coins. That's what that was. Um, so in the past, those kinds of things resolved themselves by time, in this case, resolved by Richard Lionhearts, which yes. is an unusual an unusual kind of thing to show up in East Roman history, but there you have it. Um, I've also looked into the case of Leon's Gouros more closely. Mm-hmm. So this is this, you know, local, call him whatever you want, you know, wannabe warlord in southern Greece who takes over the Peloponnese and part of central Greece and is marching north when he's pushed back by the uh, Marquis of, uh, well, by that point, King of Thessalonica or whatever, you know. Boniface Bonifacio, of Manfred. yes. Um, there's no evidence that he began that movement before the Crusaders arrived and every indication that he was doing it as a, a loyalist of Alexius III, mm. whose daughter he marries during the whole business. And in other words, Alexius III, after he fled Constantinople, in 1203 is going around sort of maintaining his network of loyalists as the legitimate emperor and Zguros is just one of those. So there's no provincial split or anything like that. You can possibly make the case for this interesting character named Manga Fas in Philadelphia in Asia minor. and. It's a tantalizing case. He keeps going back and forth between the Romans and the Turks, the Seljuks, right in Asia Minor, and it's not clear, you know, what the attitude of the most most of the people in Philadelphia are. They they seem to be willing to be reabsorbed uh, when that possibility exists. Um, So, with with that sole. Reservation that case of Philadelphia, which is right on the border between Roman and Turkish controlled parts of Asia Minor, um, I would say that the provincial separatism has been exaggerated too much.
0: It's it, it's a really um, it's a really interesting thing because we don't really most of these things are just mentioned by Coniates. So we don't know specifics. There 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 seem to me to be I don't know three or four other figures who rebel either in. Greece or Thrace or in Anatolia. And they and it makes me think had this had the central court and army just become so weak that rebels were saying, Well, I'm a rebel and just hoping events would sort of go their way. An army will be sent to put them down and they'll turn the army into their army. You know what I mean? That I think there's a there's a weak case there that they're trying to separate like a province right in the middle of Roman territory, but are they just thinking the court seems really weak? These armies are not even reaching me, so let's see what I can get from this.
1: So you're thinking of the sort of warlords appointed by Alexius III in the Balt in the various he's given various Balkan forts like all these Ivans and people like that.
0: Yeah, there was a couple of, and then there's you know the guy who who founds the state of Epirus uh michael but this is all okay hold on as in as in when he's in anatolia he rebels and goes to the turks you know just little you know and you wonder what are they up to because they're clearly not going to take constantinople with their tiny theme army
1: yes so these are people who and and we unfortunately we don't have much information about what they thought they were doing Mm. right but they seem to be moving between across the border going to getting some aid from the sultan there whatever going on raids it's unclear what their goals are but these are individuals there's no way to project what they're doing you know whatever you imagine that their goals are onto provincial populations and say there's provincial separatism here yeah. the normal response to that kind of situation on the part of the provincial population is like don't get in trouble (laughs) you don't have to fight back like there's no sense that you know every little city or town or whatever has to like fight to the death in the name of the emperor no no the emperor doesn't even want that Mm -hmm. the emperor wants you to stay safe like do what you have to you get by and then Ideally, the imperial armies will come back and restore things, as they did in that case. Alexis III shows up and he drives <clears throat> Michael Dukas away, mm-hmm. and then everything is restored. So the problem comes down to what's up with these Komneno Dukai people? Mm. Like, what are they doing? But that's a separate problem. That is a problem of the disintegration of the Komnenian system: a, its expectations that it had built up, and b, its inability to de- deliver on those expectations. In the context of the, the sort of late twelfth century kind of collapse, um, but it doesn't have anything to do with provincial separatism. Like no. I, I'm not aware of populations that just voted with their feet and like we're out of here. Yeah, yeah. Now, some guy shows up with some Turks. You keep your head down and wait <laughs> for the Roman army to show up. Yes, absolutely.
0: I always it, that always makes me think what a different world where someone comes back and starts attacking you in the expectation that you'll go okay you're our emperor now like stop stealing all my stuff um yeah that's what seemed to be going on anyway in anatolia uh let's go to the final question then um sadly which is the fourth crusade um you know i I followed michael Angold's logic on this which is that uh you know All the history, all reputable history spend ages talking about the great lengths that Enrico Dandolo goes to, to plan this Egyptian campaign, to get everyone in Venice to agree to it. So the idea that then he's on the way to Egypt and goes, oh yeah, let's divert to Constantinople. I'll just make that decision on the hoof. It seems completely implausible to me. It seems like Boniface comes to him with this idea when they're still in Venice and it's on the table, and he must have known this is a likely option. Otherwise, you know, how can he operate one way and then and then switch everything? So I was suitably harsh on the Latins for their hypocrisy and their behaviour. But then I read your history, and I thought, oh, I wasn't harsh enough. I, I felt <laughs> you uh, you took them to task with even greater ferocity. Um. I I don't have a specific question to set you up, but do do you want to uh, just talk about the, um, the fourth crusade and and how it was uh, conceived to go to Constantinople?
1: Well, first I'll address the topics, the the question that you just raised, because Mm. I think this is important. The let's say conspiracy view of the fourth crusade, by the way, it was absolutely a conspiracy. A hundred percent, even our own sources, the Western sources describe it as such. Um, By which I mean a collusion among part of the leadership of the Fourth Crusade to lead it there without explaining it to their own soldiers or to the Pope um, uh, what they were going to do. But to kind of manipulate the army in that direction, that's their own narrative about it. Uh, You you don't have to. um, uh, This isn't you have to theorize to make it a conspiracy theory. It is a conspiracy in black and white. Um, What makes it also a crime is that some of these people, especially the Venetians, had just sworn an oath uh, to defend the interests of uh, Romania and Alexius III in making a treaty with him, which was a very generous treaty for them. Um, So all of this business about the honor of the crusaders and all the hard decisions that they had to make and the... And ringing in modern scholarship about the tough choices that these noble crusaders were facing is all bullshit from beginning <laughs> to end. Um, however, one of the problems with this sort of conspiracy view of the crusade is to blame it on the Venetians. And I think that's wrong. I don't think the v- Venetians were behind, and there's no evidence that the Venetians were behind the diversion. Uh, They they were moved into that because I think they had no choice. Uh, And to answer your question specifically, why would they prepare an invasion fleet for Egypt? And there's some evidence, by the way, just in terms of like nautical technology, that the fleet that they built for the crusade was specifically for an Egyptian campaign, not a Constantinopolitan one. And I'm fine. Like, I agree that that makes sense. Um, why would they change? Well, because the situation changed dramatically between the contract. And so the Venetians getting to work on the fleet and the situation that they were facing when they had to set out, which was, there were two key factors here. One, they didn't have enough soldiers to make an Egyptian expedition plausible. In other words, the, the, the organization had been botched because they made this contract that the Venetians invested a lot of money in building this fleet, but they didn't make the effort to ensure that all the cr- potential crusaders in Western Europe would go through Venice. And a lot of them just went off on the oh, crusade. Okay, we'll just head off on our own and get passage on a ship or whatever. And we'll meet with the army when it shows up there. But that means that they're not then there to pay, you know, their fee or toll or whatever to the main army. So, A, they don't have, they don't muster a large enough army in um, Venice to make Egypt plausible. And also, in exactly that year, Egypt was taken over by Saladin's brother, a character we called, um Safadin, um, who was a real badass and known to be that so suddenly egypt which for uh, uh, you know the, around in 1200 looked like a a target that you know was right for the plucking suddenly became much much more formidable uh a prospect so those are the two reasons why the venetians were willing to reconsider um the target uh but the the conspiracy was actually hatched among um a different Set among uh, the leadership, um, especially the marquis we mentioned Boniface and uh, one of our main historians, Joffrey of Yardevon, the the marshal of Champagne, and and others, um, who uh, by their own admission were angling for Constantinople before uh, it was known, before these problems were known, they were pushing for it and. Um, And even trying to like maneuver the Pope into it, who said no. Um, And then when the original plan fell apart, they were already there pushing for Constantinople. So it was 100% a conspiracy. um, And in the way it was carried out a crime. Can Um, I
0: jump in there? Sorry. So because... I Boniface, uh, you know, without having to go through the whole history, he had family connections to Constantinople. He's ambitious, and so on. So I can see his motivation, and I I think the Venetians, they're the ones providing the intelligence, right, on the situation in Constantinople, saying we could take the city. So where where are the French in this? What's their motivation, and and what do they know about Constantinople?
1: The Venetians of- are not the only source the problems that constantinople was facing were well well known in fact we have a report from before the crusade um that one of the key um admirals you know probably one of the most important guys in naval warfare you know the the turn of the century there this guy called margaritone um he actually was the guy who had basically confiscated the imperial fleet on Cyprus um, in a failed attempt uh, by the Constantinople to retake it from the person we mentioned, Isakios Komninos, the rebel whom they never managed to suppress. And he told the king of France that, by the way, Constantinople is like, you can really easily take it if you have a fleet. Like it's Mm. not a a difficult um, um, target anymore. Um, So this was pretty well known that Constantinople was weak. Uh, but it you, you didn't need to be based on Venetian information. Um, yeah, so the, the French were very well aware of this. Um, and in fact, uh, they seem to... Anyway, and let's back up. In, in the second half of the 12th century, there's increasing proliferation of voices in the West, in literature, in letters, in chronicles, whatever, that, hey, you know, at some point we need to take Constantinople. There's a prophecies about this, right? And a number of Western monarchs, or kings of France, sometimes even the German emperors are beginning to toy with the idea of taking Constantinople and absorbing its titles into their own and sort of, uh, you know, acquiring the whole Roman imperial prestige that they thought that would bring because it, it's it still had that kind of, you know, cachet and um, so th- this was an idea that was going around. It, it doesn't have to be focalized on specific people, though, as you said, the ones that we happen to know are connected to Constantinople. They, they do have family contacts there, so they also know what's going on. Um, Alexius III is embattled. You know, He himself is a usurper uh, from his brother, who was himself a usurper. Um, they happened also to have a, a, a willing, pliable puppet um, in the form of Alexius IV, who was there, right? So we have to completely rewrite this narrative of Alexius somehow instigating this for his own purpose. He was completely powerless. Um, as far as we know, he didn't even have any titles uh, from Constantinople. So he was the the puppet. He was the one being used uh, by the crusade. It's completely implausible to believe this narrative that uh Villardwan pushes, but also a number of modern scholars, like they really shouldn't be taken in by this, thinking like you read these accounts and they go something like follows. Ah, these crusaders, you know, they really want to go to the Holy Land, but their honor compels them to defend the rights, quote, rights of Alexius the Fourth. So they're gonna go on this detour to put him back on his throne. By the way, he'd never been on the throne. He had no royal imperial titles at all, like never had. Um, and even the Pope called him out on this. You have no right to decide who is and who is not the emperor in Constantinople. He told him that you will not go there. You will go to the Holy Land or or Egypt or close enough. So no, Alexius is not a, he's a non-entity here. And he proved himself to be a non-entity once they put him on the throne. Do you, do you think the French leaders
0: talk themselves into this being a religious matter or do you think they were just completely cynical? I mean obviously that the, the two are not yeah completely oh, no no separate, I don't think those
1: but, two are separate at all no um that they were cynical when they in the way that they informed the the file and rank yes the re- sorry, the rank and file. Um, about their decision, yes, because they definitely knew uh, that um, a a lot of Western soldiers were prejudiced against the, the Greeks, and they made that into the central argument for, you know, we have to punish the Greeks, quote, restore them to obedience to Rome. These are heretics and schismatics, and they've undermined crusading since the beginning and will never succeed in the holy land and us we first take care of those greeks and so on and so forth by the way it's interesting that to their credit many of the soldiers didn't buy it mm. left yeah uh, or grumbled or whatever they, they were but for the majority you're like you're so far in at this point that yeah it's like it you 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 you've gone way beyond the point where you can pull out, mm. and you're thinking, well, if they're saying it, and you know Constantinople has riches, and so maybe I'll recoup what I've invested so far and come home, which a lot of them did afterwards. Uh, so they were very cynical about how they um, manipulated their own army, and in a sense, that army is as much the victim of the conspiracy among the leadership, you know, as as anyone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. so pure pure speculation then. Uh they restore Alexius Angelos uh he says, "Oh, you know, I've looked down the back of the sofa. Turns out I do have all the money and I haven't bankrupted the state. Here's the money." Do you think they go um well you you have to bring 10,000 men to Egypt now. Or, uh, oh you can't do that, right? Well we're going to take the city for like do you think they would have just found an excuse to take the city regardless? Of how much he fulfilled, what he promised.
1: It's hard to know, but I tend to suspect that yes, that, th- that their goal was to take over the city. Um, but it, again, it's hard to know, so I'm not going to assert that categorically. I don't no. have proof that that was their intention. No, no. but the there's um, their strategy doesn't make sense if you think that they're really planning on leaving. In other words, they keep extending this quote contract that they have with him to be his like, you know, protection force or whatever. And they are the last in a long line of Western warlords that had dreamed of this, that had even tried to do it. And quite a few Normans had tried to do this. And you're thinking, okay, like, so what were the Normans? Well, you know, what was Robert uh, Giscard or um, Bohemond or um, any of these other people, what were they planning on doing when they were marching on Constantinople with with their puppet emperors? They all had their puppet emperors, right? So you know, they knew that they needed to have a puppet Roman ruler because the Romans would never accept uh, anything else because at this time they're not planning on just like liquidating the whole state and putting their own in its place, which they did later. So you have a puppet emperor and you're his army and you would then force him to distribute his lands to you as fiefs. I think that's the, that's the goal. So you keep a puppet in Constantinople, but all he has is a city and the rest of the empire you divide up into fiefdoms, which is what a lot of them wanted. So I, I think that's, that's the likeliest scenario, assuming that he could pay them. It's very, it's very mafia-like.
0: It's very like we've got a gambler here. We'll just rack up his debts to the point where it, we he'll forfeit, and we just take over his business, and then take all the assets out of the business, and then declare bankruptcy, and we've enriched ourselves, and we move. They had on. operated
1: that way many times. This isn't the first time they're doing it. This is how you describe
0: the Normans when they first appear in Italy. Yeah. Uh, well yeah but kind of using legalistic pretexts to seize things and then extort the population and so on and so on and until you are the lords of this place that you came in as mercenaries and
1: that's exactly how it works and any of our listeners who have gotten into a contract that it turned out long term wasn't as advantageous as they thought knows exactly how this works um and when it comes to the enforcement of contracts there's usually a stick somewhere. You know, you can't just say, oh, I'm just going to pull out of this now.
0: So do you think, last question, that some modern scholars, whether they mean to or not, are taken in by the Christian rhetoric of it, that ultimately a crusade is is a Christian mission for a good purpose. Therefore, this can't be just a cynical uh, enterprise by our standards.
1: Well, I mean, there's Christian rhetoric on both sides, but you yeah. mean specifically Western medieval Christian.
0: That because the Crusade is a spiritual idea, that the way they write about it, they can't, they can't fully divorce that idea that it's because it has a noble purpose on some level. I can't write about it in in purely in purely cynical terms, even just the leadership. I don't know.
1: Well, we certainly seem to be able to do it about many other wars, including yeah. wars in our own time. Um, I mean, who believes that George Bush waged a feminist war in Afghanistan? <laughs> but I remember that that's how it was pitched to me. Mm. Um, well, this gets us into the um, modern interpretations of the Crusades. And mm-hmm. for a long time, you know, down to the 1980s, the cynical view was the dominant view. Um, you know, if you read like Runciman on the Crusade, on the Crusades, which is an excellent and very very well written account, you know he, he Runciman is by no means an ideologist of any kind, um, and he has considerable admiration for a lot of the personal qualities of many of the Crusaders, and you know he spins a romantic tale, and it's a great deal of fun. But deep down, he was very very cynical about what they were doing, and that changed um, in the toward the end of the 20th century with a school of interpretation that was very pro-crusade, in fact, apologetically pro-crusade, and um, developed all kinds of other models which uh, pushed the idea that the crusades are this uh, spiritual, religious, devotional um, decision that individuals made. It had nothing to do with profit or gain um, or, or anything like that. Anyway, and now we're seeing the pushback against that school, which was dominant for a generation or more, uh, that, you know, it, it, it added, uh, you know, considerable insight and nuance into the whole movement and to how many people perceived it at the time and, and chose to engage in it. Uh, but it's certainly not uh, the only story. Um, and the more cynical players are, um, are, we're always there, and especially in the Fourth Crusade. Uh, that one is one of the hardest ones <laughs> to justify and to treat that way. Nevertheless, there there has been. I mean, most of the recent scholarship on the Fourth Crusade is deeply apologetic in this way. It always sees things through the eyes of the crusaders. Is always trying to justify their decisions and see them in the best possible light. Um, and you know, you 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 have a liberal use of the passive. Tense. It's kind of like well, mistakes were made. It's like you're reading a Pentagon briefing about some botched campaign <laughs> in you know Indo Indochina or you know the Middle East. You know, no. Yeah, it's exactly like that. In fact, the way Vietnam was talked about in the U.S. by by establishment types was like, well, our noble intentions went wrong, or mistakes were made, or. You know, we didn't quite appreciate the, the response of the local population, which they also said about the Iraq War. Like, it's always the same kind of thing. So when scholars of the medieval crusades are sounding exactly like Pentagon spokesmen, uh, you gotta start thinking, wait a minute.
0: Brilliant. Well, I very much encourage people um, to read the book and for people who are interested to learn more, to follow the footnotes, to to, to learn more about all these periods um but if you have your own question for professor Caldas, his incredible generosity with his time means we'll do one more episode where we will put your questions to him um ama ask me anything yeah um the yeah my only advice would be if if you think the answer could last an hour and a half we may not ask it because we'd like to get to as many as possible but ask anything you like and we'll we'll go through them and see what we can do um email me, uh, thehistoryofbyzantim at gmail.com, and uh, we will see you in, uh, we'll give you a few weeks to get them in, and then we'll go through them. So, yeah, Professor does. thank you so Professor, much.
1: you <laughs> can call me Anthony. As I know. I, as a good I'm answer.
0: very sycophantic when I'm on air, but anyway.
1: I, yes. I see. Um, well, I was wondering, depending on which of our media lasts longer, the podcast or the print... in the long in the distant future i might be known as that guy who appeared on robin (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that bloke who occasionally appeared there that's right what a a dream that would be (laughs) anyway i'm hedging my bets here you see
0: (laughs) right till next
1: time all right take care